The last two weeks have led us to this important point today. Two weeks ago, if you remember, we talked about obedience from the heart. And as a part of that sermon, we looked at the prophecy from Ezekiel with the promise of the new covenant in which God promises to give us a new heart, right? And we talked about what that heart is like. But in that promise, if you recall, he also promised us something else, didn't he? Not just a new heart, but his own spirit. And then last week, we talked about how sin is a great lack or void, creating an emptiness or vacuum within our souls that can only be filled by God. And so today, in Romans 7, we will talk more in depth about where both of those messages were leading, to our being filled by God, the Holy Spirit, and then serving in this new way of the Spirit, living and walking by the Spirit of God. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 7, and we'll read verses 1 through 6. Romans 7, 1 through 6 says this. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Got a few coughs in me, so don't be distracted by that this morning. Okay, so verse 6, that last verse that we just read. Uh, That's the climax of this passage, (laughs) the summarizing main point. And it is a wonderful truth that I want us to dig into today and meditate on and try to understand it and apply it to our lives, that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We have a new way of relating to God of serving God, the way of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit way of life, a lifestyle, a conduct, a way of living and acting in this world that is guided by and governed by and sustained by the Spirit of the living God. And to really get a grip on this, I think it's important that we look to another passage as well, a kind of sister passage to this one. (coughs) It's found in Galatians 5. And in Galatians 5, he gives us, uh, in verse, starting in verse 16, he gives us a promise and a call or command. And so this promise is this. I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he talks about how if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law and what the works of the flesh are like and what the fruit of the Spirit is like. And then comes the call. He says, if we live by the Spirit, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So that promise and that call are both very important. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And nearer to the beginning of that letter in Galatians, he rather bluntly has this question of the Galatians. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying the decisive beginning of your Christian life happened when the Holy Spirit gave you new life and started your new heart beating. He opened your eyes to the, and the eyes of your heart to see and believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again for your salvation. So if he is the way that we have this new life, why would you try to live the rest of it without him? That's foolishness. So that's the backdrop to when he says that call in Galatians 5 that if we live by the Spirit then... Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I love that image of, of keeping in step with the Spirit. As he's walking among us, let us keep in step with him. Earlier, he said to walk by the Spirit, right? That walking is a metaphor for how we live, how we, how we move through this life and through this world. In some way, that is to be shaped by the Spirit of God. And the main point that Paul talks about, is, about this is how this is not mere law-keeping. It's not. It's a new way of life. As Romans 7 put it, it's serving in the new way of the Spirit. The difference is as vast as the difference between a to-do list and a friend. Infinitely different, right? No matter how beautifully written the to-do list is, no matter how wonderful the, the tasks prescribed it is nothing compared to a loved one's presence and fellowship and care. They are infinitely different. This is why it's such a tragedy when spouses become mere to-do lists to one another. Or parents become mere to-do lists to their children. Or pastors become mere to-do lists to their congregation. And we don't just do this in marriages and, and, and family life. We do this to God. We become to-do lists for him. And so we think that's what he is to us. But Paul is trying to reorient us. He says, no, he wants to be with you. Your friend, your love, your life, your light, your strength. Jesus called the Spirit the advocate, the helper. It's in him that we serve. It's by him that we walk. It's, it's by him that we live. So let it be him that we keep in step with. I was listening to this song this week by the band, uh, The Grey Havens. And the song is called Ghost of a King. And I love that image. The ghost of a king. It, it's talking about, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And you know, older translators and Christians of the past generations, they called him that. The Holy Ghost. They would also call him Holy Spirit at times. But it wasn't as exclusive of a name as it is today. Um, in our modern times, we've decided to pretty much do away with that other terminology and just, just call him the Holy Spirit. But that song got me thinking about that decision and, and whether or not it was the right one. 
Because when we choose words for translation and theology and faith, we often do so based on the connotations that that word carries. So ghost connotes spookiness and death and supernaturalism. So naturally, our modern minds don't really like it. Whereas the word spirit is sufficiently vague and malleable, and we've adapted it to fit right in. We say, that's the spirit to encourage children, right? But if you, if you say you saw a ghost, that's far less vague. It's something mysterious, yes, but it's also something personal. I mean, if you say you saw the ghost of Abraham Lincoln, you mean you saw Abraham Lincoln just without his body, right? You encountered the person. But if you say a certain politician has the spirit of Abraham Lincoln, that's a nice sentiment, but it doesn't really carry the same weight. The question I was thinking about is this. Which one of those phrases gets us closer to the idea of the presence of the third person of the Trinity? They both have their strengths, but I would argue that the combination of personality and otherness that a ghost connotes gets us a little bit closer to the understanding of the Holy Spirit. When you encounter the ghost of Lincoln, you're saying you encountered Lincoln himself. And when you encounter the Holy Ghost, you encounter God himself. And as I thought about this, I had another thought. I'm not certain about this. I'm just thinking out loud with you all. But what if this shift in how we talk about him has contributed to the shift in what we emphasize about him, about his presence and his work? Might the terminology shift have contributed to the emphasis on power over an emphasis on personal attributes? And character. What I mean is, if he's a spirit, the way we often use that word, then he's a force or a power. But if he's a ghost, then he's a person. Think of how we use the word spirit. We call a person spirited when they are enthusiastic or full of energy. But, and then that carries over when we, use, when we call him spirit. So we emphasize energy and enthusiasm, right? But if he's a ghost, what would we emphasize then? Personality. What's he like? Character. Re- reverent awe, even. And it seems like that's exactly the difference in emphasis between those that called him the Holy Ghost and those that only call him the Holy Spirit. It's not that one is wrong and the other is right, but that they, they do shape our thoughts differently and emphasize different things. I'm not saying that we should exclusively call him the Holy Ghost. I'm probably still going to primarily call him the Holy Spirit, but I won't be as turned off or embarrassed by that older terminology as I used to be. What I'm getting at is it matters how we think about God. As C.S. Lewis once said about calling God father rather than mother, he said, image and apprehension are in organic unity, meaning the images we use to describe how they actually shape how we apprehend or understand a thing. We would think very differently about God if we called him mother rather than father. And the same is true about spirit. I just want us to be mindful that not all of our modern ideas of spirit are particularly helpful or healthy in this regard. He's not merely a force or a power. He is a person. And as such, he has a personality involving character attributes and relationships and desires and emotions. So when he lives in you and with you, He goes about his life and he being himself and he brings you with him. He relates to Jesus and magnifies Jesus because he loves him. He unites you to Jesus because they are one. He makes you love differently because you start to love what he loves and love how he loves. And and his personality begins to shape yours. 
He is patient. He is kind. And as he lives in you and with you, you begin to be patient and kind like him. What we call the fruit of the Spirit are really what theologians call the communicable attributes of God. I remember one of the first things I learned and, stu- and studied as a Christian was the attributes of God. My Sunday school teacher, Casey Lawson, when I was a teenager, my brand new Christian, we, he was taking us through this systematic theology book, and he started with the attributes of God. And we learned that theologians make a distinction between two types of attributes of God, the communicable attributes and the incommunicable attributes, meaning those that he shares with us and those that he doesn't share with us. And, and the, the incommunicable attributes are those like the omni ones, you know, like omnipresent. He is fully present everywhere all at once. And we can't share such an attribute. It's incommunicable. But there are attributes that he can and does share with us. The communicable attributes, such as joy and gentleness, these are parts of God. And this was such an amazing truth to me. These parts of God become parts of us. C.S. Lewis called it the good infection. We catch it by being around him, and it like an infection, but a gloriously good kind. He rubs off on us. But it's more intentional than that phrase might suggest. He is actively forming us into his image. And all this helps us understand the question that I think naturally arises, which is if he is doing this work, why doesn't he just do it all at once? You know, why doesn't he just change us completely a lot faster, more efficiently? And I think this idea of him as a person helps us get at that. Because if he is a person, this means this process of salvation is personal. It's communion with the divine. A relational engagement of love. We aren't simply using him to become better versions of ourselves. We are communing with him and being changed as we do. In our world of everything on demand, of instant gratification... We become impatient with development and process, don't we? We want finished products right away. So we think something is broken with our process of sanctification because it's not right away. But what if God values the process of our growth and the work involved in it, not just the final product? The same spirit who sanctifies your soul hovered over the incomplete creation. He doesn't rush. He takes his time. He can do whatever he wants faster than we can even imagine or contain in our minds. And yet, God created in six days, resting on the seventh. He didn't rush to the finished product, but delighted in the process of creation, even lingering over his work of the day and calling it good. And we, as his most prized creation, we're not just made from nothing in a blip, were we? No, we were crafted from the dust and breathed into life. He doesn't just do things instantaneously the way we modern Westerners would if we were him. He seems to enjoy and value the process of making and remaking Far from anxiously or angrily fretting about that process, he desires and delights in the development as well as the destination. I loved reading about the artist's work, uh, Makoto Fujimura. 
he was writing about his work. I loved hearing him talk about it in his book, Art and Faith. And he reveals that, the, uh, that he, he has this process where he, he enjoys it. He revels in that process of learning and, and, uh, and leaning on God while he makes art. He says, if God is self-sufficient and Jesus was God's only son, then Jesus did not need us, nor did he need to weep over us. Jesus' love extends beyond the utilitarian need to survive or our pragmatic need for a savior. Jesus' tears are gratuitous, extravagant, and costly. My art imitates this through the use of expensive materials, minerals, gold, and platinum, and reliance on slow process that fights against efficiency. I like that actively. He's fighting against efficiency. The, the Nihonga is the name of the Japanese style of painting that's the lineage of his approach to art. And he uses paints that he has to make himself. He spoke of one project in particular where he's making one painting for each of the 150 psalms over the course of a decade. And he says that project is a, is a good discipline for me to slow down and spend time with the poems of God's heart. I'm using materials that require me to slow down. Sumi ink, sticks made from pine shoots that I must rub against the stone for more than an hour. And oyster shell whites, pulverized oyster shells that require more than three years to create and take me a day and a half to reconstitute. I also am using platinum and gold powders, two of Nihonga's materials that are considered most difficult to use. So to him, this process of making is this, he calls it a devotional liturgy. And it, its enemy is efficiency. He actually fights against efficiency intentionally. Fujimura knows that efficiency is not the, as great a value for God as it is for us. This is because God's highest value is love. And it can be incredibly inefficient to love. Our God is more concerned to lift our gaze and stir us to sing and ignite our imaginations than he is in just getting things done. He aims for wonder and worship, fellowship and love, which often make him take slower moves, to take scenic routes. Exodus, the Exodus, took time, called for faith and growth. Patient progress is his pattern of action. And this is how he is at work within us. Because his aim is communion. Our change and growth is more about fostering love and communion with God and neighbor. It's not mere self-improvement. Remember Romans 5 Back a couple chapters ago where Paul told us that the work of the Holy Spirit is what? To pour the love of God within, into our hearts. We live this Christian life by the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God into our hearts. And this same Spirit connects us with Jesus who also lived by the Spirit. Did you know that? That may surprise you. Why would Jesus need the Holy Spirit? He's God himself. But there you go thinking about need. And necessity again. Is that what it's about? Or is it about efficiency? Or is it about communion? The scriptures tell us that it was by the Holy Spirit's presence and power that Jesus' mother Mary conceived him. But more than that, Jesus lived his whole life in and by the Spirit. Like in Luke 4, when he's about to be tempted, the text tells us that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned uh, from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
It was by the Spirit's power, the Bible tells us, that he was casting out demons and healing the hurting and proclaiming good news to the needy. He, he claimed Isaiah's prophecy about himself that said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. When, when Peter tells Cornelius about Jesus in Acts 10, he points this out. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Hebrews 9 tells us that when Jesus offered himself up in death, he did so through the eternal spirit. And Romans 8 tells us that the spirit who dwells in us is the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So, and when Christ ascended to heaven, he poured out his spirit on his people to bring love and hope and faith, flowering like a garden of life and virtue in the arid soil that once was dead in sin and rebellion. We are his people, united to him by his spirit, to freely live and love in him, and in his love, growing in grace and truth, communion and completion, this is why, in Scripture, the Holy Spirit always points people to Christ. Because he is the very Spirit of the Son. J.I. Packer, in the 80s, wrote a book called Keep in Step with the Spirit. And one of his points in writing that book, one of his reasons uh, he was making, one of the points he was making was to caution, in his incredibly clear and winsome way, I love J.I. Packer, but he, he uh, so there was some ex, uh, expressions of what he called the charismatic tidal wave that broke over Britain in the 60s, among which there was such an emphasis on the Holy Spirit that at times it appeared to encourage people to downplay or ignore the person and work of Christ. People were claiming experiences that didn't point to Christ, but instead pointed to the Holy Spirit alone, or worse, to the experience alone. But he wanted it to be understood that a true sign of the Holy Spirit's work is the exaltation of Christ. Because that's what he's all about. And this is important, an important point, not just for controversial church movements, but also for our own lives. As we seek to serve in the new way of the Spirit, what is the way of the Spirit? It's the exaltation and communion with Jesus Christ. Remember, the Spirit is a person, a person of unimaginable love, eternal love, unquenching, unceasing affection shared with the Son. It is this person who lives in us. To keep in step with him then is to be utterly devoted to Jesus Christ. To let the fire of his love for the Son kindle our own affection and love for Jesus. His aims become our aims to see Christ magnified. The Spirit of, is united to Jesus they are united by virtue of being of one substance, co-eternal in majesty. And as we are filled by the Spirit and enlivened by him, we too are united with Jesus in his life and in his death. His life is really our life. And his death was a real death for us. That's what this text in Romans 7 is saying. Paul says he compares it to the death of a spouse. It, our death with Jesus is as real as the death of a spouse. When a spouse dies, we are no longer bound to them by marriage. That's the only honorable way for a marriage to be ended. And it really does undo that bond forever. 
And in the same way, when we died with Jesus, it undid the bondage of the law and gave us a far more liberating and life-changing and gloriously joyful way of serving God. Serving in the new way of the Spirit. And believing this, it takes imagination. Imagination is not only made-up things. I actually do like the phrase make-believe, though, because it's what you're doing, making yourself believe. Your imagination, though, is a mighty tool for good and for evil. It's a, it's a faculty that's too often forsaken or abused. But we can and should practice imagining things that are actually true. For instance, if during the week I know for a fact that Audrey is at home working, it doesn't make it false if I imagine her there. It can make me feel connected with her to use my imagination and think of what she is doing. It can make me feel connected with her to use my imagination to, to, to see her. It won't be a perfect reality, but it's a lot closer than not thinking of her at all or in some vague, unimaginative sense. What I'm getting at is don't think when I say, because I'm going to say it a lot, when, I, when I'm talking about using your imagination, I'm not saying it's not real. I believe you need to use your imagination to walk by the Spirit. We use our imaginations no matter what. It's a beautiful and unique way that God has made us as his images. And many people and spirits want to capitalize on it for their ends. When people say, I can't help it, I can't help thinking about a certain thing or thinking a certain way, and in one sense they're right. We can't always help what images flash on the screen of our imagination, but we can help what stays on the screen. What we linger over, what we dwell on, we can change the channel of our imagination. We can choose what story we are living out by the Spirit. Our God is infinitely creative. He created butterflies and waterfalls from his imagination. And the doctrine of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit means that the mind of the most gloriously creative imagination is active and in conjunction and union with our own mind. We can imagine the world in our lives as they are not yet and strive to bring about what we've imagined into being. But we can also imagine what is really true but is not present to our senses and then live in accord with that reality. Let me give you two things I imagine as I strive to, to walk by the Spirit. First, I imagine my life as a story. It is. And God is the author. He is. And I am a character. I am. These are all true, but I imagine it. Even now, I'm in a scene. This is indeed the truth. There are ways of, of talking about life as a story that are ego-inflating and self-indulgent. I know that. There are, I know, a few narcissists out there who truly think that they are the, the main character of the story of the world, but I don't think that's most of us. I think most of us don't think of our lives as stories at all. And, in, and because of that, we undervalue them. Or if we do, we think of ourselves as minor characters whose actions and reactions are of minor consequence. But let me give you a different way of thinking about it. This image was given to me by Indy Wilson, and because it's been of such a help and inspiration to me personally, I'm going to read you a lengthy couple quotes, but they're wonderful, okay? He says, clear your throat and open your eyes. You are on stage. The lights are on. It is only natural if you're sweating, because this isn't make-believe. This theater is for keeps. 
Yes, it is a massive stage and there are millions of others on stage with you. Yes, you can try to shake the fright by blending in, but it won't work. You have the creator God's full attention. As much attention as he ever gave Napoleon or Churchill or even Moses or billions of others who lived and died unknown or a grain of sand or one spike on one snowflake, you are spoken. You are seen. It is your turn to participate in creation Like a kindergartner shoved out from behind the curtain during his first play, you might not know which scene you are in or what comes next, but God is far less patronizing than we are. You are his art, and he has no trouble stooping. You can even ask him for your lines. I love that. You can ask him for your lines. You can. He has no trouble stooping. He has stooped. Christ has stooped to become one of us. The Spirit has stooped to fill us. He is deeply invested in your story. Earlier in that same chapter, Wilson said this. He said, understand this. We are both tiny and massive. We are nothing more than molded clay given breath, but we are nothing less than divine self-portraits huffing and puffing along mountain ranges of epic narrative arcs prepared for us by the infinite word himself. Swell with pride and gratitude for you are tiny and given much. You are as spoken by God as the stars. You stand in history with stories stretching out both behind and before. We should want to live our chapters well. But doing so requires that we know the chapters that led up to us in our time, in our moment. It requires that we open our eyes and consciously begin to shape those chapters that are coming after. I'm telling you to use your imagination. Because it's the only thing you have that can grasp the bigness of the gospel. It is the way God has given you to keep in step with the Spirit. In that same book, Wilson says that stories are soul food. And I love that phrase. And he's right. And I think he's right because, and I think also that the old adage applies, that you are what you eat. The stories you consume, the stories you tell yourself, the story you see yourself in, all shape your soul. And your imagination is how you eat. What story are you living The big question for us is, what story are you a part of? We are a part of the greatest story ever told. God's pursuit of his people. And that's the first truth I imagine. The second is the very reality we've been talking about. The dwelling that we've been dwelling on in in, in verse 6. Serving in the new way of the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, the ghost of a king, is in you. To live concurrent with the new you. In harmonious concert and communion. The Almighty who hovered over the fetal universe. Imagine what it would look like to live aligned with him. Imagine in the upcoming scene. Imagine the legacy of your life, the wake he'll leave behind you. Imagine his power, his strength, empowering you to fight sin. He's his might making you a conqueror. Imagine him making a way of escape from temptation. He says he will as you, as you look for it. Use your imagination. Be creative. It's there. Use your imagination. As, imagine him saying, 
Look at Christ. Isn't he wonderful? Imagine him speaking to you through his word. He is. Imagine it. Imagine him filling up not only you, but your brothers and sisters in this very room. That when you come together, you bring the presence of God to one another. Imagine it. Imagine that he has purposes in the pain. And that he's with you as close as your own heart in the midst of it. Imagine that he is of one essence with Jesus, that he is in fact the spirit of Jesus. Your soul and Christ are indelibly linked. Don't just, what I'm saying is don't just let the truth be placed in a bland manila envelope in the filing cabinet of your brain. Received and tucked away nice and neat. Got it, check. No, live by the Spirit of God, letting Him fill your heart and mind with color and light the way He filled this world with live oaks and lightning bugs and laughter and lakes and limes. The same Creator God is the sanctifying God. And whether we call Him the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, we call Him holy. And He is holy. And His presence will make you holy. As promised in Galatians 5, that text that we read earlier in the sermon, what did he say? He promised you. He said, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You won't because he goes on to say that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. He is against the desires of the flesh. He comes to slay them. He is a knight and they are a dragon. And here's what the dragon is like. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. Imagine him with you. He is full of love. He is full of joy. He is peaceful and patient. He's not just passively, but actively kind and good. He is faithful and gentle, never out of control. And as you live out of his life and character and power and presence, you begin to produce these very same things. His spiritual sap pumping through your veins, through the new heart that he has given you. By faith, expect to become this kind of person. Believe it. Imagine it. Live it out. Ask for his help all the time. He never tires of your requests. Jesus once told a parable of a person bothering their neighbor by knocking and asking so much that it was annoying. And then he said, pray like that. Serve in the new way of the Spirit. I want to close by sharing two poems with you guys. 
My favorite poet, George Herbert, wrote a poem for Whit Sunday, the Sunday celebrating Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit. He calls the Spirit the dove, referring to Jesus' baptism when the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. So let me read you the first stanza of that poem. He says, Listen, sweet dove, unto my song, and spread thy golden wings in me, hatching my tender heart so long till it get wing and fly away with thee. That's my prayer this morning as we seek to serve in the new way of the Spirit, that the sweet dove would hear our song and spread his golden wings in us, hatching our tender hearts till they get wing and fly with him. And now the second poem that connects this to Romans 7 a bit more clearly. It may or may not have been written by John Bunyan. It goes like this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. He's saying the law demands, places demands on us without giving us any power, demanding we run but giving us no feet. And the gospel brings a much more beautiful call and it gives us the ability to live in that, that new life, bidding us fly and giving us wings. And Herbert's poem shows us how we get those wings through the sweet dove spreading his wings within us. Jesus died for us and with us, this text tells us, liberating us from the law, and he conquered death, rising from the dead, giving us his living spirit that we might live a new life with him forever by that spirit. Turn to him and trust in him and live with him today. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for sharing your own spirit with us, for giving us the far better news of the gospel that blesses rather than demands. You've given us a new way of relating to you. And I pray that you awaken us to the glory of this new way. Give us your patience and love for this journey, knowing that you value the process and are not just perpetually dissatisfied, but are rejoicing in your good work within us, your work. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.